Welcome to One of Two Hundred. For this episode, we've got the live recording of the People's Epidemic Response Committee, which we live streamed on our YouTube channel. If you enjoy it, make sure you share it with your friends and family, and your local MPs uh, and decision makers. We want to try and get as many of these recommendations in front of the ministers as possible. Hope you enjoy. everyone to the People's Epidemic Response Committee. Really good to have everyone here and I, I just want to start by saying a huge thank you to all the experts and advocates who have shown up today um, to have a chat with us about what's happening in New Zealand with our communities. I'm quickly going to begin by introducing each of the people that we have on the panel. Uh, I want to make sure that um, everyone knows who we're talking with and I'm going to go uh, left to right on my screen uh, <laughs> hopefully it's similar across the top there um, so we've got Brooke Powell Stanley from Auckland Action Against Poverty uh, welcome to the panel Brooke Kia ora tato. thank you for having us today I'm looking forward to um, hearing everyone's reckons and sharing ours too We've got Justine Sachs, uh, Stand Up Youth Union, uh, co-convener. Kia ora, my uh, honour and privilege to be among such uh, great thinkers here today. <laughs> and that's not actually sarcasm. Um, <laughs> and to talk about, you know, a people's, uh, the people's pandemic response and what we would like to see. And I think all these struggles are so interconnected. So really keen for to hear the kōrero. We have uh, Maya Ratna, uh, architecture lecturer at Unitech. Uh, tēnā koutou. Um, yeah, really lovely to be here um, amongst uh, some of the, the, the top dogs in, in, in this sort of response space. So, uh, ngāmihi. Uh, Dr. Rawari Jansen uh, as well. Uh, kia ora tātou. Me mihi tūtahi ki tōtā o reo te ni. Tēnei wiki o te reo Māori, kia ora tātou, he uri ahau no Ngāti Henerangi me Ngāti Raukawa. Yeah, thanks for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Over. Kia ora, Rāwari. We've got Andrew Chen. Um, you have a, a rather a long uh, intro, which I, I can't remember all the details of, but we joked about earlier. Yeah, kia ora tātou, na mihi nui mō te kōrero. Thanks for having me. And Janet McAllister from the Child Poverty Action Group. Kia ora koutou, uh, kia koe kaio, ngā mihi, ne te mihi, um, e, ki ngā kai kōrero, uh, tēnē te mihi kia koutou. Um, this is really exciting, thank you for the opportunity. Let's, let's go, let's go. <laughs> hey, thank, thank you so much, uh, all of you, uh, for joining us today, uh, and, and thank you to our audience as well. Um, and anyone listening to this, um, not live, uh, but either on the save video or on, on the podcast. Now, we've had a lot of talk in the last couple of weeks around a committee that the government established last year called the Epidemic uh, 
um, response committee. And it was an opportunity for the opposition parties, uh, but also members of the community to directly question and challenge some of the issues um, and community needs uh, during the government's response to COVID-19. Now, in the last couple of weeks, Labour has decided not to re-establish that. Um, and there's a lot of noise from uh, some of the opposition parties involved. But I think the real problem with not having something of this sort is really the opportunity for community members, community leaders, community advocates to challenge the government um, on some of the decisions that they're making. And it's a real missed opportunity that we can't have um, MPs and ministers here today uh, to, to answer questions directly. But I thought it was really important to facilitate a conversation uh, with advocates to ensure that there is a space for those conversations to be had, especially in the sense that a lot of the critique that we're seeing in the media um, and from politicians is around the health response. Now, we know that there are some gaps in the health response, but for the most part, you know, New Zealand is talked about as having a one of the top uh, responses to COVID-19 in the world from, from a health perspective. What's often not talked about here in New Zealand is that there is an economic response alongside that. There's a community response alongside that. And that's where, in my opinion, and uh, I think a lot of other people um, who are critical of the government see some real gaps in what Labour has chosen to do. Um, there have definitely been initiatives which have helped large numbers of the community, but we know from just the, the wide range of statistics out there that there are also failures. And I think we all want to see the health response to be better, um, if it can be. We all want to see the economic response to be better. And we all want to see those communities that are underserved or at risk be given the opportunity to flourish. So what we're going to do today, uh, we're going to go through one by one. Uh, I'm going to hand the floor over to one of our advocates, one of our experts, um, to talk about what they're seeing in their space, um, what some of the challenges they, they are currently facing. If at any point you have questions, pop them to the chat. I'll try and um, pick those up. We'll have a question session later on after everyone's um, gone through to talk about the issues that they're seeing. At the end, I hope to have our guests offer some recommendations directly to the government around what we can be doing better. Um, but other than that, I, I just want to say welcome again. Uh, welcome to our audience. Welcome to our guests. Thank you for being here. And I hope to see some really great uh, discussion uh, and opportunities come out of uh, this panel this afternoon. So I wanted to start by handing it over to Dr. Raiwari Jensen. Um, public health specialist uh, working in that space currently at the moment. What are you seeing uh, happening there uh, over this last lockdown, over the last 18 months? And what are the major challenges that you're seeing in your community? Kia ora, Carl. Um, so just to be clear, I'm not a public health um, expert. Um, I'm pretty public 
and I'm something of an expert in terms of what's going on in health in our community, but I haven't trained in public health. And one of the things I think we notice as we're going through this health emergency is the importance of public health experts. And I guess I'm referring to people like Professor Paparangi Reid and Associate Professor Elena Curtis, um, Associate Professor Donna Cormack, um, and their expertise has been really influential in how we think about and how we navigate our way through this complexity. So one of the things we're seeing with COVID is it exploits the weaknesses in our society. And so the original COVID outbreak was, um, you know, people who could afford holidays overseas were coming back and um, that's a particular demographic. But ever since then, we've really seen the outbreak start to uh, impact Māori and Pacific communities and really specifically South Auckland. And that's because um, our people are more likely to be working in essential work and frontline in terms of um, uh, look, looking after people in the COVID hotels, um, working in the ports and um, working in hospitals and um, some of the non-health qualified roles. And so there's some pretty significant risk associated with that. And uh, so the impact of COVID has also been a feature. We've got quite a lot of information. I think we've published quite widely on it. And it shows that um, if COVID gets loose in our community, the impact will be catastrophic in ways that the non-Māori, non-Pacific community won't experience. And so... The one way of thinking about that, to visualise it, is that a Pākehā man aged 65 has the same risk of impact from COVID as a Māori man aged 44 or a Pacific man aged 40. So it's a huge age um, adjuster in thinking about impact of COVID. We see some really troubling things in terms of the response um, when COVID affected some people's employment and work, we decided we would um, experiment with a two-tier welfare system. And so people who were made vulnerable by our um, current arrangements in society for people unemployed uh, were on the lowest level of support and other people were on twice as much. Really hard to justify that approach. Um, if there's a minimum amount required to live well in our society, that is the amount that we should be supporting all of those who are not able to be employed. And yet we didn't do that. In fact, it appears that we've used the crisis, the COVID emergency, to test some very um, troubling approaches to supporting communities in a grossly differential way. Um, I guess... Um, Right now, we are facing the complexity of trying to deal with Delta. Uh, I don't think there's a country in the world that has beaten Delta. Uh, Auckland right now at level four is close to containing the outbreak. Um, but there's some features of the outbreak which um, give rise for concern about whether we are able actually to contain it. And so, again, the virus is exploiting weaknesses in our society and it, it's reaching into parts of our community that are less amenable to traditional public health responses 
less amenable to traditional public health contact tracing approaches, um, less engaged with uh, health services that are likely to be able to reach out to them and support them through it. So those complexities make it really, really difficult to, to manage the outbreak. And uh, so, you know, now we're facing a situation where the government's kind of signaling that um, this is your last chance, Auckland. If you, uh, if you can manage the outbreak, good on you, well done. But we're moving to level three uh, next week. Um, and if you can't manage it, by the way, we're moving to level three next week, so you better be bloody vaccinated. Uh, and I, I find that a um, deeply disturbing um, imminent threat to Māori and Pacific communities uh, in Auckland right now. So that's my opening response to your question, Kyle. Kia ora rābari. wanted to move uh, next to Maya Ratna. Um, to talk about some of the issues with housing. And I think you also wanted to talk around what uh, you're seeing in the tertiary sector as well and some of the uh, challenges for students at the moment. Yeah, I suppose there's kind of, if we're talking first-hand experiences, I think as a researcher in housing, um, I'm sort of a step back from that, seeing what's happening on the ground. Um, but in as a lecturer and um, part of my role is in charge of pastoral care for Maori students um, in the architecture school. And it's been really evident, um, I feel, that um, the inequities that have been exposed, as Rawiri has said, um, for Maori Pacific students because of COVID and the lockdown. Um, so I wanted to sort of talk to both of those things a little bit. Um, firstly, yeah, around this with students, what I'm really seeing is, um, yeah, these huge inequities that with students being able to study at home. Um, one thing with architecture particularly is it, it, it requires students to work a lot with software. Um, that software is really, really expensive. Um, and so hardly any students across the board pay for it themselves. Um, but what we notice on campus is Māori and Pacific students are much more likely to stay on campus longer, use, use the uni labs um, and that kind of thing, rather than go home and study at home because one, they don't have a laptop, they don't have Wi-Fi, they have large whānau, so they don't have a space to study. Architecture tends to have, you know, you're making models, you, you're spread out, you're, you're taking up lots of space. So lots of mining Pacific students tend to do that at uni rather than take it home with them and spend long hours, much longer hours there. Um, what I've spent the first sort of three weeks of the lockdown doing is getting students' laptops, making checking in, making sure they've got what they need. Um, and also noticing they're not, mining Pacific students are much less likely to jump on a Zoom um, class or lecture. Uh, so lots of chasing up all the time to make sure they're getting the content and they're keeping up. And I just, I think I have a huge fear that what this is going, what's going to happen from this is that Martin Pacific students aren't going to pass the year because they don't have access to the equipment and things that they need to be able to study at home. Um, which is a far cry from some of the work I'm seeing, which is almost better from non, from Pākehā, non-Māori Pacific students, other students um, are almost producing better work because they're in their little room by themselves, they've got everything they need. Um, 
so that's a huge issue that I'm that I'm having to work through firsthand and and also lots of you know they're coming to me with it's quite it's kind of blown me away a little bit how honest they've been around how they're finding things mentally um and not being able to support them from afar in that sense has been quite um worrying um and then I think on the other side and in terms of my housing side um I work alongside Manaki Rangatahi who are the youth homelessness network um so currently working as a researcher trying to put together some of them like put data and information together around the kind of mahi that they do for rangatahi um there's been quite a lot out in the media about youth homelessness i think um but it's still a major issue and i think the thing to really recognize like health housing we are living in a housing crisis regardless of whether COVID is here or not that doesn't stop so when we talk about, I think the last, the first lockdown, and they talked about how they housed all the homeless people, um, they managed to house everyone. But when you talk about rangatahi and youth, um, just housing them is actually not necessarily appropriate or safe. So there's been a lot of advocacy around ensuring that there's actually safe space for rangatahi that where they're not around unsafe people or um, situations and often what ends up happening is because they actually feel safer on the streets with their peers they end up running way back to the streets rather than staying isolated in a motel room next to I don't know people gang members can be very vulnerable um, so that's a that's another thing that I think has really been elevated um, through these lockdowns and something that actually we need to start thinking about how we can prevent these things before they happen rather than um, you know, the lockdown happens and then we sort of jump it in and try and fix all the problems. But actually they're things we could have fixed beforehand. Yeah, um, I think that's that's me for now. Kia ora. Kia ora, Maya. I wanted to come uh, to you next, Andrew, uh, talk a bit around the, the data and uh, tech equity um, issues. Great, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Andrew Chen toko ingoa, he pai wai rangahau ahau, uh, i koe tu i wai papa taumatarau, uh, kia ora mai tato. Uh, yeah, thanks very much for having me and um, being part of this kaupapa. Um, I mean, as Dr Rawiri said, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed significant disparities in a lot of different spaces. Um, one of those is in the sort of digital inclusivity space. Um, and, and I think when I read about the issues as they're portrayed in the media. I think a lot of people still think that digital inclusion is just about access and that if we like give laptops to all of the kids that we can call the job done. Um, unfortunately, access is important, but it's not enough on its own. Um, and so we now have this model for digital inclusion where there are four pillars, uh, motivation, access, skills, and trust. And they're interlinked and influence each other um, we want people to have a reason to want and be motivated to use digital technology and participate in digital spaces. I think, you know, we're getting there with um, a large portion of the population. Then they will hopefully seek out access, um, which is not just about the hardware as well, but uh, as Maya said, also about the infrastructure, like having the internet connectivity, having access to the software. Um, people often just assume that everybody has access to Microsoft Office, but that's not actually true. Um, people need to have the skills to use those tools, which is not to say that everybody should know how to write code, but just that dumping a laptop on someone's doorstep doesn't solve the problem. 
Um, and then people need to trust the people who make the services, the people who hold on to the data, the people who create the online spaces in order to be able to meaningfully participate in the same way that um, we all assume we can. Um, and I think there's, there's two key stories that I um, look at when I think about the inequities that we've seen throughout the pandemic. One is that, um, uh, you know, when we entered lockdown and suddenly expected everybody to work and study from home, it revealed just how many students um, and the background of those students who couldn't participate um, to genuine concern that students will have fallen behind and that some students will have lost engagement over lockdown and may, may not return to school afterwards. Um, the Ministry of Education estimated that the number of students in years 9 to 13 who needed a device this year, so even having you know, met the needs last year, um, this year the shortage was still in the seven to 8,000 sort of mark. Um, and while they've deployed some resources over the year, um, I think that there is a problem when we're seeing that charities now have to raise funds to meet the shortfall. Um, and you know, a shout out to Digitotua for the exceptional work that they're doing in this space. Um, but we really shouldn't be relying on digital inclusion charities to bridge the gap. Um, the other story that comes to mind is around digital contact tracing. Um, and it just revealed how many people don't have smartphones and even those that do, how many have old smartphones that are incompatible with the app um, into COVID Tracer, or, or how many just like don't know how to use it. And, and when the government was just pushing out instructions like turn Bluetooth on, they just said, turn Bluetooth on. That was all they put in the advertising. It was actually really unhelpful to a large portion of the community who just had no idea what that means or how to do it. Um, and we've also seen just how little people trust the government when it comes to their data. Um, despite the government doing everything that it can to reassure people that the data collected by Ended COVID Tracer remains on the app, despite all the efforts at transparency, um, some people still believe that the government secretly logs every QR code scan to know where every person has been. Um, and this proportion of people who refuse to use Ended COVID Tracer for that reason. Um, and, and that comes back to you know, the actions of government before the pandemic. Um, I think that there's, when we, there, there's a lot of mistrust of the data tools that are advanced by the government um, and our most structurally disadvantaged communities have very good reason to distrust the government. Um, it, something I found quite fascinating was that early in the pandemic, some of the agencies that were trying to push some of these tools would say, oh, it, it wasn't us that misused the data in the past. Um, you know, not, not even just it wasn't our agency, it wasn't me personally. Um, but the people in the community, they don't have relationships with individual agencies. They definitely don't have relationships with individual policymakers. Um, they perceive the government as a single entity. Um, and so what we're kind of seeing now in the government space around this sort of individual agency approach, this fragmented approach to trying to rebuild trust with the public, I, I'm really not sure that it will work um, because I think it is something that has to involve the public sector as a whole. Um, and so, you know, a year and a half into the pandemic, I still believe that the government has missed a massive opportunity to do something about digital inclusion. There is a digital strategy that's currently being developed, but I mean, it's kind of going around in circles because we had a digital strategy a couple of years ago and didn't really execute on it. Um, and, and while the magnitude of the challenge is difficult to measure accurately, as much as 20% uh, of the adult population uh, were likely excluded from the use of digital contact tracing, were likely facing difficulties using digital technology to keep their jobs or go to school, or to communicate with their friends and family during lockdown. And, and we could have taken a much more inclusive approach to ensuring that every person who wanted to participate in the digital realm could do so fully. So the government could have uh, allocated more resources towards policies like, uh, for example, smartphone vouchers. 
um, or providing further subsidies for internet and data costs or uh, providing broader technical skills training and support programs. Um, and we would have seen a long lasting impact well beyond just responding to this pandemic um, because we are seeing more services move online. Um, we're seeing banks and government agencies, you know, they're, they're getting rid of bank branches in rural areas. Um, and, you know, if we continue to do nothing in the face of that trend, we run the risk of further isolating some of the people who need access to these services the most. Um, so, I mean, I think similar to many of the points that other speakers are going to make today, like digital inclusion isn't a challenge that was created by the pandemic, but it is one that was highlighted and, and has exacerbated the challenge. Um, and we do need strong government policy in this area. Got it, Andrew. Wanted to come to you next, Janet, uh, to talk about what you're seeing uh, with Child Poverty Action Group. Kia ora. Um, thank you, Kyle. Um, thank you, Andrew, for, for talking about um, digital inclusion. Um, it's, it's, it's great to hear somebody with, um, with your knowledge on that, um, that, that topic because we're, we're really deeply, deeply concerned about it. Um, you know, obviously, um, at the moment, education in Aotearoa, New Zealand, isn't free because you need that device and you need that internet connection. Um, often our young people and um, our children do have some of those skills, um, but uh, with those ongoing costs, um, which uh, it, it, as well as um, whether they've got a device themselves, whether they're sharing one with siblings. We've heard a lot about um, a number of students um, with really creative responses um, to, to those almost insurmountable barriers, such as um, writing out longhand and then taking a photograph of essays so they can upload it um, during a hotspot, um, writing essays on their phones with their thumbs, um, and then a number of other students, obviously, um, who they haven't drifted away, they haven't disengaged, the system's actually disengaged with them. Um, and and I, I find it... Um, absolutely uh, appalling that um, you know we were caught short uh, before the initial lockdown last year um, and so you'd think that um, you know that they, they would have prepared something um, and had that real high priority of a digital inclusion strategy and 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 you know uh, we, we're not seeing that at all and it's 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 just seems so counterproductive anyway that was going to be my fifth point um, so I'll start at the um, the beginning um, now which is is look we, we all here want um, to look after each other in our communities and, and as a society do the best we can for, for everybody. So um, just to explain why lockdown is difficult and hard um, for families on low incomes, including fixed low incomes, um, such as, as benefits, um, your lockdown bills are expensive. Um, so that can be grocery bills because, um, you know, uh, one one quote we had last year was there's no specials in in, in lockdown um, and if you're relying on those that means that that can be really really difficult um, when you're relying them to, to try and make ends meet in the first place and obviously with no schools there's no food and schools program so we've got um, families in Fano um, who uh, may have children who have are having one or even two meals at school and then all of a sudden they have to take on that additional expense. So an unexpected expense um, can mean really long-term debt or, or hardship for people who are on fixed um, incomes. Um, you've got that data um, connection um, expenses, you know, um, phone credit or, or online, um, you know, get, get, getting those um, devices if you do have them connected online. 
And then of course, um, power bills are likely to go through the roof when we've had everybody at home in winter and we've been trying to keep warm. Um, so, so lockdown is tough. And then for this lockdown, um, for, for a number of families, um, they would have been in a worse financial position than they were um, at the beginning of, of the initial lockdown. Um, and here's where I'm gonna try and share my screen as to why that might be. Um, this one will probably do. So um, uh, Child Poverty Action Group did some um, research about the first year of lockdown and, and what it meant. And I'll, I'll go through this, there's quite a lot of information here. Um, for, for our, our um, children in Tamariki and low-income um, situations. So we had the long-term issues of inadequate social housing and inadequate income support from government. Then we had the lockdowns themselves, the crunch, the necessary public health response, um, and that meant school online, and it also meant those high bills. Um, and then we had last year's inadequate um, government response. So there was some increases in income support that were lockdown related, but not enough. Um, there was um, very little um, for, for homeless um, youth, as, as Maya has alluded to. Um, and then there were inadequate interventions for renters as well. So we saw um, after the rent freeze um, that that rent went up again. The impact was 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 terrible. So that little quote there is actually from government officials to um, Jacinda Ardern as the Ministry Minister for Child Poverty Reduction, and it says, "quote The most severe negative effects of the COVID nineteen pandemic are likely to be felt by those who are already disadvantaged." Um, and that is included in um, family and whanau stress, food insecurity, which is linked to income insecurity, um, and then an increasing inequity in chronic school absences, so education and then health as well in terms of um, immunisation. Um, so you look at that and you're like, well, look, the government's response this time around needed to be better than last time's. But in actual fact, it's been more piecemeal. So we've had a worse response this time around than we had in the initial one in terms of income support. Um, so last year, um, the winter energy payment was doubled, meaning that families with children got an extra $30 a week over winter. And also we had lockdown related benefit increases. Um, so those together weren't adequate, but they were something that was in response to lockdown. Um, this year we've had nothing. Um, the benefit increases that were announced in May um, partially came in in July. But um, of course, um, we haven't had the doubled in winter energy payment this year. So people, are, those things have basically canceled out for a large number of families. Um, and so people are struggling on the same amount of money as they had last year at the moment. Um, but of course, inflation's gone through the roof. So, so they're in a more difficult position. Um, and then we've got these other benefit increases that are supposed to be coming in in April. Um, but uh, you know, children can't, and their families can't, um, can't live on promises. So um, we're really needing to see a big boost in income support happen very, very quickly. Um, and it's it's unclear why that hasn't happened yet. And then again, um, that digital inclusion strategy needs to needs to be a, an all of government kind of um, focus. Um, we talk about you know government and all of us needing to have. Um, families and children at the heart of their policy, which sounds pretty airy-fairy, but I think these two um, uh, examples um, show what that would mean. One, it would mean income support so that families can make your own decisions about um, the food they're buying and the, and the, and the credit, et cetera, that they need. 
um, rather than relying on charity, rather than relying on food banks, um, which may or may not have the food they need. And we know that only 25% of providers um, can have, um, usually have donations of fresh fruit and vegetables. So it's, it's not good quality food often in spite of the best efforts of people. So food banks are really communities being told that they have to pick up the pieces of government failure. Um, so we'd like to empower families and ensure that people can have that um, uh, participation in society. And for that to happen, um, we need a government response that looks at the fact that the most disadvantaged um, had the most severe negative effects and actually steps up and, and, and changes their response to be better, not, not worse um, that, than, it, than it is currently. Um, and look, um, as um, Rawiri said, it's Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori. So I'd like to leave you with a whakatauki, which talks to our work at Child Poverty Action, which is poipoia te kākano kia puawai. Nurture the seed and it will grow, is the, the rough translation there. And we would say our, our children, our tamariki, are, um, need, need good ground, need good resources in order to flourish and grow as um, we all would like them to. So kia ora, thanks for listening. Kia ora, Janet. Justine, uh, I want to come to you next. Um, and yeah, what you're saying, maybe in terms of frontline workers and, and what's happening in that employer um, em employment space. Yeah, kia ora tato. Uh, ko Table Mountain, Te Munga. Ko Val River, Te Awa. Uh, no Johannesburg, Aho. Ko uh, Justine Tokuengo. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I, um, you know, I, I just want to talk firstly everything that's been said um, because a lot of this is, um, you know, there's so much crossover between um, in these spaces. And so um, it would be remiss of me to talk about frontline workers without talking about welfare, without talking about housing insecurity, without talking about public health, without talking about. Um, you know, uh, digital rights as well. So I just want to, you know, uh, acknowledge that. Um, and I, I want to begin with saying that at the end of the day, um, inequality is the number one thing that has and will continue to impede our COVID-19 um, public health response. And um, in every single way. Um, and, and so for, for me, it is front of mind that we grapple with uh, wealth inequality um, in order to actually see, you know, to, to, to beat COVID-19. Um, and the only way we're going to do that, I believe, is through the union movement, through these various struggles. So, um, you know, what we saw um, following the um the lockdowns last year was effectively a K-shaped recovery. And I'll explain what that means. Um, it was a missed opportunity, so I, I definitely totoko that. Um, you know, uh, what COVID-19 revealed and exposed um, was how threadbare our social contract had become, you know, um, with a lot of people, you know, living um, in, in dire poverty, housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, and, and also precarious work, right? And, um, and what COVID, and what it also demonstrated was how these things impede our ability to have a strong public health response. Um, yet, unfortunately, it was a missed opportunity because what we saw the government do following, you know, directly, um, the out, you know, our, our first outbreak last year was effectively to take um, strong and swift um, 
measures to protect the price of assets of housing um, and to ensure that um, you know homeowners and property investors were not disadvantaged and that was through basically cheap interest rates right um, and so effectively what happened from there was that the rich got richer and what we can see is that workers um, lost out you know out of that COVID response that is what we saw and I think Janet you um, your uh, uh, visualization kind of showed that you know um, and and yet, the you know the same problem. We we when we, you know, again we're here again, and we see that if we don't address these issues, if we if people don't have um, you know a home, uh, if they don't have secure income, if they don't have access to healthy food, it impedes our our ability to stamp out the virus, right? Um, and I, I think that's what I've seen, and I've been um, I, I see this as a sort of call to action because. It is urgent that we address we address these things, and for me, unions are essential. You know, um, organizations they are democratic organizations which give which give us the power and ability to have that voice. Um, and it's so important that we we do challenge some aspects of the government COVID, the government's COVID response. Um, I think particularly, the, um, I mean, like uh, maybe I'll just talk quickly about how. You know, trust is so, firstly, I mean, Andrew talked a little bit about trust, but I, trust is so essential. Um, trust, you know, trust in our institutions is so essential to the public health response. And when we have huge chasms between the haves and the haves not, that erodes trust, right? And, you know, um, recently we talk, there, was, there was talk about how Denmark had, um, you know, so effectively um repress the virus through high vaccination rates and some of the the main things that came that was taken away from that was it was because of high trust that there was such a high uptake of the vaccine and i i worry that if you know um that we need to quickly rebuild the trust between um and the, you know in the social contract between the people and the government um and we can do that in several ways but um that is to me essential in for ensuring the success of the vaccine rollout, high uptake, and also for ensuring compliance with public health orders. And the way that the government can do that is by um, is taking care of people, right? Um, and the wage subsidy, I'm not here to bag on the wage subsidy because it's probably one of the most effective policy instruments um, to keep people in jobs and to um, you know prevent like economic collapse that you know we've seen in. 40 years. It's it's a it's a, a vital policy, but there are some real issues with it. Um, one is the two tiered welfare system. So you know, um, I'm here as the representative for Stand Up, the youth union movement. I make no distinction between unemployed um, and employed workers. We are all from you know on this. We share that it's the struggles the same, and we know that um, when people when there are high levels of unemployment, that is used to um, to keep down wages so you know like there, there are so the struggle is the same we have the same interests in ensuring that benefits are set at a livable level and when we have a two-tiered welfare system a two-tiered support system where people currently in waged work are able to sustain themselves and um you know people who are um, relying on the benefit are left you know, and there is no targeted response, no increase. And, and you know, we're talking about substantial livable, um, you know, increase to ensure people can thrive. That um, That is, you know, uh, that undermines our public health um, response. And it also is something that is absolutely part of, I mean, I, I, 
you know, an injury to one is an injury to all. That's a union saying. Um, and so I just really worry that we leave um, unemployed workers behind um, with this two-tier wealth, uh, welfare system and the wage subsidy. And, you know, as um, Janet spoke about the energy, where is the winter energy payment? Um, why hasn't that been doubled? Um, we need to urgently see benefits um, increase to livable levels. We need a rent freeze. We need an eviction um, moratorium. We need those things urgently. Um, we needed them yesterday, but so, but we'll need, we need them today. Um, and yeah, so uh, like uh, there are some exciting things, I guess, um, which I just want to flag um, because as I said, I think crucial to um, to solving these issues, and we talk about inequality, um, housing insecurity, the housing crisis, is a strong union movement. And so um, I'm really excited um, by the fair pay agreements, which will see large swaths of certain sectors um, have, you know, sector-wide agreements that will stop um, the race to the bottom, basically. That happens currently where um, essential services are contracted out and it creates sort of like this incentive for wages to plummet. So that's another um, opportunity for people to come into the union movement. I think we're going to see, um, uh, you know, hopefully an increase in um, unionization, which is really, which is essential, I think, I think is essential. When you look at, um, you know, wealth inequality and how it tracks with union membership, the lower, um, as union membership and unions were decimated, um, you know, in 1991 with the Employment Contracts Act and um, with other, the Bolger government and Roger Normics, we saw this, this huge increase in wealth inequality. Unions are incredibly effective um, instruments to effect change, to make sure people have a fair share of the pie, if that's the metaphor you want to use. Um, and so um, I, I think that's, for me, probably the one of the most positive um, developments um, that has come from this government. Um, so uh, it's really exciting to see it's particularly targeted in sectors where um, we know, you know, it's just purport they're low-waged workers, um, and from you know uh, from poverty poverty stricken backgrounds, we we've got housing insecurity. We've got po we've got poverty, um, and people are working like full time and sometimes over and unable to provide for their fano. So um, that's really exciting. Um, yeah, that's that's all from 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 me really. I just think these things are also related, um, and uh, I do I do think that we have to do everything in our power to prevent another K-shaped recovery, um, because I don't think we will, as I said, um, we will not be able to um, defeat COVID nineteen um, with such huge social cleavages, um, and I hope to see the union movement stand in solidarity. I certainly stand in solidarity with AAAP and Child um, Poverty Action Group and the, and the mahi that you do um, around, because I don't think there's any distinction and I don't think there can be. Um, and we do have some opportunities, you know, the labor shortages and the fair pay agreements offer an amazing opportunity for us to organize and to to build back better as, um, as some say. So um, I want to build back better and um, I'm excited to at least um, to struggle for that, yeah, and to fight for that. Kia ora. Kia ora, Justine. Just uh, lastly, I wanted to come to you, Brooke, um, to talk about what you're seeing in Auckland. Um, we're in level four here still. Um, you know, we're, uh, this is a month of lockdown, um, something that we're not seeing across the rest of the country. So yeah, really interested to hear your thoughts about what's happening. 
thank you, Kyle. Um, and thank you to everyone who's shared their whakaro today. Um, I also want to reiterate that all of the things that all of these issues are interconnected and are actually reflective of the fact that the system's real shit. Um, and during COVID and during a lockdown, it just highlights even um, how worse it is that these things become. Um, I want to mahi to the communities that we love and support at AAAP. We often speak about them in, the, in um, media um, from a very deficit perspective when people ask, what are people going through? And I don't want to take away from their struggle. They do, they are struggling. Um, you know, with food insecurity, housing insecurity, they don't, um, but also want to acknowledge the fact that these communities are the most resilient communities that um, we know. They're also the most resourceful. Um, they're also what's held them together um, as they've survived and been forced to survive in really extreme conditions as love and solidarity. And I think um, what makes it especially hard for these communities during lockdown is they can't do that. They're cut off from each other. Um, they're, cut off, they're cut off from sharing. Um, they're cut off from also being able to carry um, the very heavy load that the system puts on them um, in terms of surviving um, in poverty. Um, I think, as Janet mentioned earlier, um, we're seeing MSD operate um, as from, still continue to operate from a low trust model, which uh, makes it extremely hard for people on benefits to access really simple things like food, um, getting help paying their bills, um, getting help with paying their uh, rent. Um, we've also seen them still asking for people to meet obligations around emergency and transitional shelter. So asking people to still look for alternative housing during a lockdown. Um, still asking people to provide and prove hardship during a lockdown. Um, and we've been pushing and been really uh, strong in our advocacy that they need to operate from a high trust model. It's a high, the same model that they use to administer um, the wage subsidy and COVID income relief payment. Um, in terms of like from, yeah, we, we haven't also seen the same government support. They're chucking all this money into food banks and they're doing everything. <laughs> they're doing everything but raise benefits. Um, and, you know, I think, we think at AAAP that People in the communities, they know what's best for themselves. Just give them the resources to make their own decisions so that they can have their own agency and their own power and sovereignty, sovereignty in this space. Um, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, we would advocate. Um, yeah, we, to be honest, we want a whole new system. That's pretty simple. Like all of the issues that we see, like, we fight in the welfare space for the for the people and communities that we love and support. But let's be real, the whole thing shit. Everyone in all the spaces that we've all spoken about today. And I think that all of us here representing organizations and communities, and we're all kind of talk about these things in isolation of each other, but actually all of our issues are connected and come from the fact that this system, the settler colonial system, doesn't have the range and doesn't actually know how to take care of us. Um, they center things like uh, money. <laughs> it's the most important thing in the system. And I think COVID actually is forcing us to look at the ways in which we practice our humanity. Um, and so 
yeah, I would hope that we can move to a system that kind of um, centers the land and centers the people. Um, and it's built actually and guided by indigenous kaupapa and values. Um, yeah, because we know that what's good for Māori is good for everyone. What's good for indigenous people is good for everyone because we build systems that don't leave anyone behind. Um, so yeah, that's from me. Thank you. Kia ora, Brock. And, and thank you everyone for uh, what you've added to the conversation so far. I think a really key thread throughout that is the extent to which uh, the pandemic and, and crises in general really just bring the existing inequalities to light more than anything else. Uh, and I, you know everyone's uh, nodded towards that in one way or another. We've had a, um, a lot of people in the chat saying thank you, um, saying tōhoku um, for, for your words. Um, we've had a few questions uh, come through as well. So I wanted to get to a couple of those now uh, while we have the chance, um, and then we'll move into some recommendations. Um, from each of you too. Um, also, if, if any of you in the panel have questions for each other, um, yell out. Uh, I, I'm sure there'll be some things um, where there's cross interest. So um, first question uh, is, is for you, Andrew. It's from Leon Salter. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit broader uh, than the pandemic, uh, but probably would be interesting to think about in terms of the pandemic as well. Uh, and it is, should internet access be made free to all? Uh, so in short, yes, right? Like the, the principle is yes, because um, having access to the internet and all of the things that the internet provides is effectively required to meaningfully participate in society to its fullest extent, right? So yes. The flip side is that, um, you know, have to bring it back to money, unfortunately. It's probably a $500 million policy to enact in New Zealand. And we do have to ask ourselves if we could spend that $500 million in a better way. Um, I, I can think of things that it, it could go better towards, um, whether or not the politicians have, share the same um, priorities as me is a different matter. But uh, and, 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 uh, in principle, yes, we should make internet free to all, but there are a bunch of other problems that we also have to solve at the same time. Kia ora, Andrew. Did anyone else want to speak to that one? Um... Or are we happy to, to leave it at yes? Uh, we should have uh, free internet. Uh, Janet, yeah. Gotta, yeah, look, uh, we can afford that. We can afford that easy um, and we need it. So um, uh, yes, totoko to yes, we should and let's do it for our future. So now you've said we can afford it. I'm really provoked by that. So. Um, you know, I came through medical training and we were always taught that, um, you know, resources are limited. And uh, so in a constrained environment, we have to make rationing decisions. And then when COVID came along, that turned out to be bullshit. Next minute, Grant Robertson has magicked up $50 billion. You know, like one of the provocations for that was, um, panic that we didn't have enough ICU beds. And so we counted all the ICU beds in New Zealand and it was 225 and fuck, we need heaps more. And within two weeks, they had resourced 700 ICU beds. Just, they magicked it up, literally. 
And for COVID, anything's possible. You just magic up money and you get the shit done. Um, the vaccination program, no worries. Just, yep, we'll buy this shit. We'll buy every kind of, we'll buy four different vaccines. Yep, we'll vaccinate everybody twice, no worries. And super cold fridges, yep, how many do you need? We get everything you need, right? And, and it just completely changed my world. And I'm just not going to go into meetings where they go, we can't afford this or we can't afford that. We've got to make it to... Well, lo and behold, when white people were at threat from COVID, you just print $50 billion. So I think we should be completely unreasonable about our demands. They can just print some money and get shit done. Over. I, I agree with that completely. We need to broaden the horizon of possibility. Um, and you look at the obscene wealth generated um, in the real estate property speculative, you know, uh, space and that wealth just being generated by virtue of owning right you're not doing anything productive you're not contributing anything to society in fact you're actively helping make things worse um but there's just obscene wealth being generated um and that should be going you know firstly we should just um i uh totoku you brooke let's just start again but um <laughs> But, um, you know, all that wealth is stolen, you know, it is stolen um, and it could, it needs to go right back. Um, and there's so much that is possible. That's so much we can dream of and make real um, with all that wealth. So next time you drive through Rimuera, just uh, start dreaming. God, everyone. Yeah, the next question we have is from Wendy Blair. Um, and maybe we'll start with you, uh, Justine, on this one um, and then open up again. But what do you see are the risks for the casual workforce? Uh, she says she knows some who receive no income support during lockdown. You know, I know uh, we're very aware of people falling through the cracks. Um, so technically, casual workers are covered by the wage subsidy. Um, you're in, in, you know, we, we talk about casual workers. That is not a real category. N most workers are not truly casual. You, everybody has a schedule. Um, I would assume you don't wake up every day and think today's going to be radically different. We all sort of have patterns of work um, and and we need to survive on that. So I would be assuming that most people would be doing, you know, um, like quite a little bit of work. So they should be covered under the wage subsidy, at least part time. You know, there's um, the scale for first time for full time workers and part time workers. Um, but we know people do fall through the cracks. And I think that is the danger of. Um, the wage subsidy in that it is at the end of the day incumbent on employers um, and passes through employers to get to workers and and there are problems with that um, you know I see definite problems with that um, if you've if you know casuals who are not receiving uh, the wage subsidy um, I would encourage them to call um, MBIE or even work an income because it is it's very likely that because as I said most workers are not actually true casuals um, you know, um, they'll have a pattern of work um, and they will be entitled actually to the wage subsidy. And if their employer needs to be prodded, so be it, please. Um, people need to uh, feel absolutely emboldened to stand up for their rights and um, their entitlements. And, uh, you know, there should be join your union first. Firstly, just join the union. Um, we will be there for you. Uh, we will support you. I mean, I, I worry. I, 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 one thing, I mean, one of my solutions is that the government needs to absolutely resource MBIE so that people who are shafted by bad bosses who um, 
you know, people who have fallen through the cracks can actually be heard and have justice. Because currently we have people, we have workers who are waiting obscene times to have their day at the employment authority and you know we have like there are so many things happening all at once we need the ability to enforce and um, ensure that employers are compliant and that people are getting money in their hands so ideally um, I would have you know if the government um, we're thinking with, you know, I think in an equitable way, I think the ideal thing would be to to have a universal basic income for everyone. So everybody has enough to survive and it is not contingent on their employer uh, applying for the wage subsidy. But this is what um, they've chosen to do. And uh, yeah, um, casuals should be entitled to the wage subsidy. As I said, no one's a real casual. So this person needs to uh, call their union or just uh, look into that further. Justine. Anyone else want to weigh in on um, that question? All right. Looks like they're good. What have we got next? Nothing. No other questions <laughs> up, up just yet. Um, do pop those into the chat um, if you have any. Um, did any of you have questions for each other at this point as well? I, I think it's probably useful to have some uh, cross discussion as well. Um, and there was a lot of uh, cross coverage on some of those uh, challenges. Kilda, not, not to put Brooke on the spot, but I'd love to hear more about your vision about a new system, um, one based on those indigenous principles, because I, I think we need to lift our, our gaze. Um, now that as Rawari says, um, you know, we, 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 we can afford anything. So um, not that it has to be dependent on on, on money either, but um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more, please, if that's possible. Um, I think I'd, I'd love to hear from everyone about what they kind of envision for a system. Um, but for us at AAAP, I think it's one that's based on aroha. Um, one that centers the whenua, one that makes sure, I mean, and we're using livable incomes for systems change as a way of transitioning out of actually the system into a new one um, that centers these things, especially given, um, you know, we're living through a climate crisis at the moment too. Um, if we don't have papatuanuku, we literally don't have anything. And I think we've um, become lost in this idea that money is like a true life life force or life source for us when actually it's not. Papatuanuku is our actual life source. And if we don't um, move into practicing um, humanity and society in a way that acknowledges, acknowledges these things or um, grounds these ideologies, then I think, yeah, COVID is something that's, we got bigger problems to worry about, not just COVID. Um, I think there's a sense of urgency, but I think also we're a country. I mean, I have faith that we can do it, um, not in politics, not in government, not in the systems that I have faith in our people, actually, our young people, our children. I have faith in the people that are in these spaces working um, for real change, actually. Um, and I think real change comes from actually a shift in our ideology um, the reason why this system isn't sustainable is because the ideology that underpins it isn't sustainable. We need to move away from racism, from division and competition to values that actually are more holistic, that are connected, 
um, they acknowledge all of us. Um, and this idea of scarcity and scarcity, the scarcity mentality that there's only enough for a certain amount of people and everyone else can fight for crumbs. Um, as Matsuura already said, like the government can just do whatever they want really. And I think, yeah, we need to be more bold um, in terms of what we dream and, and imagine for ourselves and each other. Um, because, yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, politics isn't really the space or it's, it's evident to me that people in this space, they're not the ones that are going to guide us. They don't have the, um, it's very performative. Um, they don't understand, for many of them, I feel they don't understand the gravity and, and the importance that those roles hold. And yeah, I would look to the ground, the people on the ground that have survived the system um, as our guides in terms of building uh, a system that also actually is inclusive and um, loving and sharing these, these are values that are actually really simple, but have been made extremely complex in the system. Um, so yeah, also like we need to sh shed our ego. There's so much ego shit that goes on and it's just like, we need to get rid of all these things so that we can move into a system, yeah, that kind of acknowledges the magic that actually each of us is, the magic that actually Papa Tuanuku is. Um, and yeah, so that we can all kind of thrive and be happy and live happily after, like do whatever we want. I don't believe, I don't believe like the, yeah, the dreams that my ancestors had for me was to live in this, you know, and participate in a system where I have to work all the time in order to prove my wealth. And then I die. Like, I'm like, well, what is that? Well, I don't get it. And I know that a lot of us don't get it too, but we, we feel very um, fearful of talking about a system that's actually built from a place of love and aroha and not on some cheesy shit like Aroha as, as like the deepest and most fiercest philosophy that we have um, and practice that we have. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of what I envision. I just don't want our, I want, um, I want us to be free. I want us to have our time back. I want people to have their land back, to have the ocean back, so people can decide what they want to do um, with, their li with their lives. I think that's what we're owed. So, yeah. Got We've just had a, another question come in as well um, around sick pay um, from the Magnificent Puffin. Uh, sick pay legislation has not been touched on. Do any of the panelists have views, recommendations on that? So I do know there was some um, small changes um, with it being legislated to be 10 days um, last year. That was already kind of incoming and was maybe sped up a bit uh, for the pandemic. Um, but yeah, no, nothing further um, in, in the last year. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge um, Brooke, like I just, you know, felt, I don't know, that was a really amazing uh, corridor and I just feel so inspired. Um, and you know, that's, I share your, I share your dream um, truly and I do. And I think we're at such a critical moment right now. 
um, it really feels like we have this choice where we either can rebuild and heal our broken our broken world you know or um go down a very dark path anyways not to go be very de depressed depressing but um and with regard to the sick pay um new zealand um has actually quite low legislated um sick pay what um you know we do um fully cover the cost so you get your usual wage from your sick pay in other places you don't so for instance in um the united kingdom you get uh, a real a fraction of your normal wage when you take sick pay you get unlimited a lot of places have unlimited sick pay sick leave excuse me but um you get a fraction of your wage so that creates some real problems with people being actually able to be off sick but um you know, I think the sick, I, well, I think, firstly, I think we should have unlimited sick leave. I don't, you know, I, uh, the study shows that people don't actually abuse it. Like, you know, that's the thing. High trust models, like, create um, the kind of society where people aren't out for themselves, where we focus on the collective, where we aren't, you know, trying to, yeah, um, uh, just um, enrich ourselves or, uh, you know, like, run away from mahi because it's so terrible, right? Um, so, you know, like, I think we should have unlimited sick leave. I think people, when they are sick, need to be able to be at home and rest. Um, and I think let's tie it to leisure. We just need more leisure in general, you know. Um, we shouldn't spend our lives. Uh, it's, it, you know, there's so much, you so much to be said, but, like, uh, let's not go for sick leave. Let's go for leisure. Let's um, let's have a four-day work week. Let's, um, you know, uh, actually uh feel some of the benefits from all these supposed technological advancements that have that have um apparently made us so much more productive um it's terrible for the environment that we work five days a week actually we're too productive we need to slow down and calm down and just stop so um big fan of leisure rather than necessarily sick leave you know that's the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff but unlimited sick leave why not i thought the 10-day sick leave was a good move I thought it was really good. Um, and I guess one of the other things I think we might need to consider is how we support um, parents, caregivers with additional sick leave. Uh, you know, if you've got three or four kids and they get sick sequentially, you're fucked because you've just used up all your sick leave. You better not get sick. You better go to work sick. And so the pandemic has really sharpened us up on understanding that thing of if you're sick, stay at home. And, you know, we've seen the benefits of that in terms of, um, you know, sort of close contact infectious diseases just literally fell off a cliff when we were in alert level four lockdown. Um, but yeah, I thought the 10 days was good. We can go a little bit further. I'm a workaholic myself. I don't. I need, I need to take my own advice sometimes, but, you know, whatever. Over. Kia ora, David and Justine. Hey, I'm, just, I'm just aware of time as well. Um, so thank you for your questions, uh, everyone. Um, if you do have other questions that come up um, or if you're listening to this after the live stream, um, always feel free to get in touch with us at 1 of 200. I'm sure um, any of the others don't mind if you get in touch with them as well. Um, if you've got any questions, um, I, I think a lot of us have either Twitter accounts or like comms accounts that are on Twitter um, that are happy to field questions. I, I know that 
it's really important uh, for me to be engaging um, with everyone out there. Um, and I'm sure similarly um, for others, uh, depending on who's doing the engaging, perhaps. Um, I wanted to come around to some of the recommendations uh, that each of us might have uh, at this point. Um, if I think it's best to try to uh, pitch us in a way um, as if uh, the minister um, or, or the government is listening, um, something that we can take directly um, or be relayed directly to Labour um, about what they can do better. I think all of us, um, you know, as much as we appreciate um, some of the work that's been done, we also want to ensure that we are doing everything we can to make it better, especially for those people that it's not serving at the moment. Um, and I'm just going to go across uh, left to right on my screen. Um, so, Justine, um, what is uh, your recommendation? Um, my recommendation to the government is to legislate fair pay agreements urgently um, because I think this is a good tool for um, increasing wages across the board. Um, and my recommendation to everybody listening is to also submit and get engaged with the fair agreement process because we want to make sure that it is as pro-worker as possible and um, you know actually fit for purpose and does what it should do which is set that basic uh, floor. I do think we need a basic a universal basic income um, regardless as I said I don't think that um, whether we are able to thrive should be based on whether we're in paid employment um, and I think we need a livable universal basic income. Um, I think for, you know in, with regard to what really affects people you know working class working people and I mean as I said either in employment or not in employment um, is the housing crisis so I think we urgently need radical action when it comes to housing um, you know and that means building state houses and actually living up to the idea that housing is actually a human right and I think that this I know that you know I'm from coming from a worker's perspective but this is eating, this is what, this is the driving factor of inequality. This is what eats up people's wages, people's income. And um, it just needs to urgently be addressed. And I really um, am anxious to see, you know, that it will be a tragedy if this lockdown and, you know, whatever um, financial instruments are used to ensure the economy is, you know, whatever the economy is, um, is alive and kicking will further inflate um, housing. And so, it's just so urgent. It's it's such an emergency. So that's what I'm looking for from the government. Got it, Justine. Andrew. Yeah, I'm still really processing um, Brooks Corridor actually because um, it's making re me really reflect on a life of having lived in the system and in the rules and how much that constrains your ability to imagine and just to think about other ways of doing things. Because like a lot of my advocacy through COVID-19, I've done my very best to stick to the way that things are supposed to be done. And it's really frustrating to see that then that not actually lead to anything, right? So when your question is, so what would you tell the minister? That is, you know, still playing within the rules, right? That's still play, accepting that that is the way that things are supposed to be done. Um, so, so that's what I'm stuck on, but I'll put that to one side and just say, um, you know, 
the, the minister should be thinking, or the ministers should be thinking about investing properly in digital inclusion because they've done a lot of the work already in terms of trying to understand the problem. They identified a whole bunch of research areas in sort of 2017, 2018, that they thought they needed to look into more to understand the problem and to understand how to target the solutions. And then they didn't fund the work that needed to be done to actually do that research, right? And so now they can keep saying, well, we don't know how to actually solve the problem. We don't know what will work. Well, find out what's going to work. And then once you know what's going to work, put the money into actually solving the problem. Um, you know, one of the criticisms, you know, one of the reasons to not do it is that people don't know what the cost benefit analysis is going to be, um, which is, you know, very much a political policy tool, right? Um, so do one, it's not <laughs> impossible, right? Like stop saying that we don't know what the benefit's going to be, figure it out. Kia ora, Andrew. Um... Let's move on. Uh, Janet, you're up next. Kia ora. Um, thanks, Andrew, uh, for that response to, to Brooke's vision, because I think you've put into words something that I was trying to, um, to, to kind of think through myself. Um, but I'm glad that Brooke said that livable incomes are kind of a way post one of them. Um, and and talking about yeah yeah anyway so you know give people what they need <laughs> at the moment that's money um, and also yeah and stop stop with the exclusives for digital inclusion and just start remembering who's who's missing out because you haven't done anything yet and you know, work for them until it's done. So yeah, incomes and digital inclusion. Thanks, this has been great. Got it, Janet. Brooke, moving on to you. Oh, thank you. I just want to also shout out to everyone here that um, we should be the ones telling the government what we want, not them telling us what their plan is for us. So um I think from the AAAP perspective, we want livable incomes for systems change. Um, and part of that demand is um, universal essential services. So we want to make sure that um, people, not only do people have a livable income, but also that services that we consider are essential, that should, they should be made free. So like you were saying, Andrew, and we can decide that as a society as well. Um, also, in the meantime, to administer a high trust model at MSD. Um, yeah, and start listening to the organisations and the people on the ground who are saying that they're not doing enough, um, not only just in the welfare space, across all the spaces that need fixing. Um, and then maybe just like quit. Yeah, like they're not the ones. So yeah, looking at other ways of um, governance, um, through iwi and hapu or um, systems looking at our founding documents of Hefakaputanga and Te Tiriti o Waitangi. So yeah, kia ora, thank you for this opportunity and for the sharing. Kia ora, Brooke. Uh, Maya, I just want to come to you next um, and then we'll finish uh, where we started with uh, Rawari. Cool. 
Um, kia ora. I just want to um, firstly total everything that everyone has said. Um, just 100% agree with the corridor that has been going on. Um, I think for what is really frustrating, obviously, is that we've been through this already and we don't feel like we've learned from it. So ironically, we started the uni year in a lockdown. Um, so why didn't we prevent the issues that have occurred in this fifth lockdown um, from happening? Because in the first lockdown, they went, oh, there's an inequity and students don't have things. So why did we not make sure that that wasn't, you know, that that didn't happen again now? Um, so really big on policy that is about preventing these issues rather than responding to them. Um, and then also just wanted to really mihi to you, Brooke, again about your corridor. Um, really big on that. It is something I think um, on a sort of higher level is around how do we um, how do we support rangatahi specifically to be innovative and resilient in these times of crisis, not just around how uh, not just around the COVID, but housing and climate change. Like there's so much on their shoulders as it is. So how can we support them? to live the lives that they want to live um, that isn't bounded by policy that doesn't allow them to be the people they want to be and to make the changes they want to change. So um, yeah, that's kind of my two cents. Kia ora, kia ora everybody. Kia ora Maya, uh, and uh, coming to you Rawari. Kia ora, I don't want two cents, I want $50 million worth, $50 billion worth, so I'll talk non-stop for the next eight minutes. So there's a lot of things that I want. Um, I, I acknowledge the conversation we've had about housing. I think it is a human right. We have to do much better. We've got really enduring health problems associated with our um, shit, low quality, overcrowded housing. And as a society, we should be ashamed of that. And we should fix that. I endorse what you're saying about fair pay agreements. I look forward to that. I think that is a really important contribution that this government can do. I want to um, acknowledge what Brock is um, provoking us to think about. In my own words, I'd say rule number one, love our people. And that should guide so much of what we do, love our people. Um, and so specifically for the government, I would say don't leave level four until the vaccination rates are over 90% for Māori and Pacific. If you leave level four before then, our people are at imminent risk of hospitalizations and death and and you know that that threat if I bring that home to white people say if we have five percent of our population not vaccinated in Auckland that's something like 70,000 people and if Delta breaks out among 70,000 people 20 percent of them will be unwell that's 14,000 and of those 14,000 20 percent of them will end up in hospital that's 2,800 people in your hospital system. Your hospital system is broken at that point. Your hospital system cannot cope at that point. White people, wake up, smell the coffee. You need to have us vaccinated, otherwise your hospital system's fucked. So we've got to get really straight about this. I think we've got to be really, really clear about it. Do not put us in harm's way. Love our people. Um, Another conversation we've had is about trust, and I think that's really about tinoranga tiratanga. Trust us. Let us have access to the resources. Share the power. 
we want to be part of the solution, but we must have access to power and resources to get this job done. I'm really interested in the data conversation we're having. I'm really committed to Māori data sovereignty. Give us our data. We've been battling through the whole pandemic to get access to reliable, accurate ethnicity data. That's an entitlement. Māori data sovereignty is a right. So I want to see that. Um, just to be really explicit, it's not equity if we get vaccinated last. It's that simple. You know, it's not equity if we have the same equal rate of vaccination in the age groups. We are exposed to risk at a much younger age group. So, you know, these guys know what equity is. They just got to harden up and, and straighten up and get this job done with us. I'm interested in build back better. The, um, you know, during that first outbreak, we effectively missed out on something like 60,000 um, cervical smears and we'll never get them back. And it's predictable that we will have women who have undetected cervical cancer as a result of those missing smears. It's predictable that we will lose lives because of those, because of that cancer that we haven't detected. So building back better means let's go to the international gold standard and have a self-swabbing regime. That's what we should be doing. Fund it for fuck's sake. You know, save lives and, and our community and our, you know, our families are better off. So I just think build back better, build back blacker. Come on, get with it. There's a whole lot of our health system that will not work when we have outbreaks. And so that becomes an opportunity to redesign what we do and how we do and who does it with us. So one of the last things I want to say in terms of loving our people is actually there's so much of this work can be done by our people. It should be that we're employing our people in places like Manurewa and Ōtara and in the far north and in the east coast. And the response that we need to have to address the pandemic is effectively a thousand Māori communities being supported to respond to the pandemic. And we see that when Māori communities are empowered and resourced to, to respond to the pandemic, we get the best results. Māori, uh, the whānau water providers, you know, just absolutely sensational when the pandemic hit and they didn't discriminate. They went street by street in Papakura to make sure that everybody had food and water and hygiene packs. Uh, we just need to resource more of those responses. We've got to love our people. We've got to trust our people. So that's my main message. Kia ora, peace, out. That's, um, yeah, really, really clear um, and a specific recommendations across the board there. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we, we've said a number of times, it's not up to the government to tell us what to do. Uh, it's up to us to tell the government what to do. Um, and there's been a lot of that here to today. Um, Justine, you wanted to give a, a last shout out um, to our health workers. Yeah, kia ora. I just want to end this with a shout out because I'm putting on my NZNO nurses hat to our frontline workers, um, you know, um, and pay the nurses, please pay them. It doesn't matter if you have more ICU beds, if you don't have nurses um, and make nursing education should be free, should be paid to train as a nurse, just um, up the nurses. And that's just one more thing that I just want to say. 
you know, you just cannot believe how heroic these um, these people are and they deserve so much better. Thank you so much, everyone, for, for joining us for this panel today. I think it's been really hopeful um, as much as anything else. And I think uh, everyone who's, who's watching, thank, thank you as well. Um, share this, share these ideas, uh, take them out into your communities, get other people engaged. I, I think taking these opportunities to speak um, with everyone connected is really important. Uh, I have spoken with some of the people on this panel today, but there are a number of people that I haven't as well. Um, and having us all kind of in one room uh, together has been really enlightening, I think, for all of us. That's us. I, I don't want to kind of epilogue too hard. Um, if you've enjoyed this, um, get involved, uh, reach out to us on social media. Um, most of us have, have ways for, for you to get in touch. I'll drop some things in the description below the video for those of you uh, watching or, or listening to this later. Um, thank you again so much to everyone uh, for this kōrero uh, and for the others of you who have, have come along and engaged with us today. That's us for this afternoon. Kia ora. Kia ora. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism.